welcome to Welcome to Primetime, a show covering the Freddy Krueger-hosted anthology series Freddy's Nightmares, one episode at a time. I'm Brennan Klein, and today we're not covering an episode. We're covering a person. Um, you've already heard our episode on his first episode as a writing credit, um, season two, episode one, Dream Come True, but he also uh, wrote the season two, episode 11, Dreams That Kill. It's Tom Blomquist. Welcome to the show. Hello, Tom. Hi, Brennan. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, thank you. Of course. Well, let's get into the nitty gritty, Tom. So, <laughs> first of all, like, how did you get involved in this project? What was your first... You know, what was your fir- what was the first time you were, you realized, yes, I'm going to be writing for Freddy Krueger? Well, which was, by the way, uh, an awesome, you know, opportunity experience. I mean, who gets to write, you know, that dialogue, you know, ever. So it was cool. Um, and I was a fan of, you know, Wes Craven, of course, and, 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 uh, uh, and, and the movies. So anyway, um, it was in the 80s, and back in that era... I was a young writer, and freelance writing was still very much uh, the business model of, of TV series. You would have you know, two, three, four writer-producers on a show, and, and they would write about half the episodes, and then they would uh, eagerly look for freelancers to write the others. Um, and then if you found somebody that really clicked and they were available, maybe they'd become a, a full-time person with you. But... The, the idea was you'd get some fresh dialogue, some fresh points of view. It wasn't the same people writing the same things over and over again, particularly since those shows tended to not be the continuing storyline types that you know we're familiar with today. Uh, they were generally self-contained stories. So it was a half-hour show or an hour show. It would be you know, beginning, middle, and end, and that was it. And they could air them in any order, and it wouldn't disrupt much, You know, at least within a season. Be tough to air a season four show in the first season that would mess things up. But uh, there, there was at best a general evolution to a show, and not a such a kind of micro evolution like like they they do now. So mm-hmm. um, I was uh, I had just left the Stephen J. Cannell company and where I you know worked and produced uh, you know the A Team and Riptide and a bunch of those shows that he had in that era. And uh, I was freelancing and trying to develop my own shows and the things that writers do when they leave a contract and try to move to the next next level. And uh, I don't remember who it was, honestly. Uh, Somebody uh, mentioned my name. Uh, It may have been my agent, uh, but it may have just been one of the producers on the show uh, said, hey, what about that guy? You know, I, it's been a while now, so I, I don't remember how it happened. But I was thrilled because, as I said, who gets the right Freddy Krueger dialogue? So I went in and uh, talked with them and found out that there were some uh, structural mandates that made this much more challenging than it would appear. It was a little low-budget syndicated show, and you would think that Therefore, things would be simple, but they had some other ideas, uh, uh, other requirements that made the writing of at least the ones I did very uh, complicated. Do you remember like any of the specific mandates that they kind of brought to you? They were like, this is the kind of story oh, yeah. you're writing, that kind of thing? Um, well, first of all, uh, 
Robert England was not in all the episodes that they mm-hmm. made. You know, he had, they had a deal with him out of 22 episodes. You know, he was whatever. He was a you know, maybe 9 or 10 or 12 episode deal where he'd come in and he would perform for so many weeks and then they'd be done with him. Mm-hmm. And the rest of his presence in the episodes was in those wraparound bumper things that they would do where he would break through the screen and make some snide remark to the audience, you know. What are you waiting for? You know, that kind of thing. So um, they didn't have him for all the episodes. And so I went in for my first one, uh, which was going to be the season opener. And uh, they said, well, congratulations, you get Bob England. I went, well, awesome. So he, he could actually be a participating character, uh, which was a, an advantage. However, it's a one-hour show, a one-hour script, but... Because it was airing in different time slots all around the country on different stations, some of those stations only wanted a half-hour show. So you had to write a show that could be broken in half seamlessly and aired as two separate episodes, and you did not have to see part one to understand part two type of thing. So wow. there were, that So that was that. And, um, and while I was writing that, I think it was while I was writing it, 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 our meetings went well and everything. So they said, we want you to do another one. And we want, <clears throat> we want to continue that structure from, your, from Dream Come True, the first episode, into this episode. Because then we can air them as four half hours or two one hours. Or we can syndicate it on video as a Freddy Krueger movie, a two-hour movie. So I had to figure out structurally, how do I tell four different stories that if they are all, you know, bonded together and put on a, in those days, video cassette and sold, you know, at Blockbuster someplace, how, uh, and they were airing those in Europe mostly. That was, I think, what they were doing there. They were selling them as Freddy Krueger movies in Europe. So I had to figure out, what do I do? And that was a challenge because it's nothing that I had ever faced before. I'm not sure even the producers uh, had faced it before. And I, this is, forgive me, maybe somebody else you talked to will remember, but I don't think they did this in the first season. I think this was a second season epiphany they had, that we need to do this, we want to do it, we can, we can monetize this thing differently and better. I don't know. But my situation was it had to be four stories, well, in, the, in the first instance, two stories, that felt like a coherent one-hour episode, but that, in fact, it was two episodes. I mean, that that's a really, it's a genius way to make that content really versatile, but that, that must have been really challenging to approach as a writer, especially if you're writing at two different times, or did you write it yeah. all at once? Well, no, I wrote the first one, you know, the two of them at, at once, and I, 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 and again, I don't remember, I think they may have hired me for the second uh, one-hour assignment while I was doing this one. Um, and then I could start projecting where I would go because you know each half hour has to have a conclusion. You have to it has to be satisfying as an entertainment, and they can air them in any order, basically. You know, so very crazy. But so in the first one, in Dream Come True, <clears throat> the uh, uh, a, you know a, a distraught mother of a messed up teenager, you know, talk needs a psychiatrist to help her kid, and uh, you know, in classic. Nightmare in Elm Street fashion, you know, the teenager who's messed up 
and she takes this kid on a talk show to um, try to help him. And the doctor, you know, finds out that Freddie is around and, and now gotten, gotten to him. So that was the end of that half hour episode. And then the second half hour of that one hour show was that one of the cameramen from the TV show becomes convinced that Freddie exists. Because remember, nobody knows he exists unless they see him in their dreams. So mm-hmm. everybody else is impervious. So, but he was determined to prove that Freddie was real and he was going to get him on camera. So he goes pursuing him and Freddie starts to play with him. And, um, and, and so he got way too involved and, and, you know, we got his comeuppance from Freddie. So that was the end of my hour and the two, you know, are self-contained, but yet they do have a certain flow because the cameraman from a TV show, there was the link. Uh, yes. so we got that and, um, Let's see what else. Then this, then the next episode was dreams that kill, and um, so there's a new host of a TV show, um, and uh, the great uh, Dick Gautier, which was awesome to have him in one of my shows, um, and he is going to, you know, do a controversial topic about dreams that kill, and of course Freddie trying to warn him to not do that. So we have the TV studio is the, and the TV cameras are the common thread between these three stories. Um, and then the last one was a, a doctor uh, that's going to uh, do some, an experimental procedure um, uh, that's gonna, supposed to help, and, and of course it doesn't. So, uh, but that's, you know, how I linked those together. It was it was it was the common media theme, I guess, or setting, mm. and it allowed me to, I think, tell four pretty interesting stories that could stand alone, and and you didn't need to see the others, but made they made more sense because you know one of the things uh, you know the human mind wants things to make sense. You know, we we're always looking for conformity and logic and and things, and so. If you have two things that are vaguely associated and you put them back to back, uh, the audience will fill in those associations for you. And I think that the showrunners uh, at the time on this series understood that. Um, and it just took a while for for me to figure it out, and I didn't do it alone. I mean, I you know, there are story meetings where you sit there with the executive producer and, and you know maybe another writer, and you're just mm-hmm. knocking ideas back and forth, trying to figure out how the hell are we going to do this. Um, so it was a real challenge. Real well, it, challenge. It, it, it's, you know, it doesn't look like that from, you know, our end. So, you know, good work. Um, thank you. I just don't know how, how many others they did this with. I honestly, I just, I, I, I should go back and look at the episode guide and try to figure it out. But, um, well, from, from I, the, I, sorry, I, I, like I, I've watched, all the episodes up till this point, and I've done research on the further ones that I'm going to cover. You're you're definitely right. Like in season one, there was only one episode that was in any way a sequel to another episode. That really started happening in season two, and I think there were five or six of them. But yours was mm-hmm. the first. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Well, I was the guinea pig then. <laughs> yeah, I but guess so. The, uh, uh, but it was really fun, and uh, it gave me a, as a as a writer for anybody out there that's an aspiring, you know, 
screenwriter or, or professional writer in, in any form. Uh, it gave me uh, something very unusual for my credits. Um, not only did most people not write for Freddy Krueger, but you know, I actually got to write Freddy Krueger. He was in all four of these episodes, which was very special. And it gave me something different. I had mostly been doing action-adventure television. Um, and in part because of, of this experience, uh, a couple of years later, I wound up being hired to take over uh, the Swamp Thing series, which ironically is another Wes Craven credit. But uh, that was a show that was floundering on the USA Network, and they wanted some changes made. And uh, uh, so I... It, and that, that show was created by Joe Stefano or adapted for television by him and Wes Craven film. And it was so very interesting that I got to do that, ironic uh, it might be. And, uh, but because I had some sci-fi, fantasy, horror um, uh, screen credits, that qualified me, I guess, in the minds of the executives at Universal to, um, to take over that show. And we did you know, 50 of those. That was really fun. And I learned a lot from this experience that I was able to apply to that experience. Oh, yeah, and I bet being attached to the Freddy name is definitely, that'll jump out on a resume for sure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And then one of my, you know, you always have samples that you show around and that people want to read. And I took all four of these episodes and I put them together uh, on paper like, like it was a movie. And uh, so I could send them a two-hour screenplay with a very interesting, you know, backstory to it if they cared to hear it mm -hmm. but you know I, I did technically write a Freddy Krueger movie it just organically evolved in the most unusual way through these little episodes but uh, and somewhere in the world there was a video cassette with a, with a two hour movie uh, my name on it which was fun so I'll have to track that down I yeah, like you said those are mostly in Europe right yeah I think that was their plan yeah I don't know how active that plan was, but they were pretty aggressive about this working this way, and it would make sense, you know. And I, uh, when I when I worked on Swamp Thing, um, I proposed to Universal a similar idea, which is why don't we um, do some mini story arcs where we have the same character come in for four episodes, and we can link those and. Um, and then you'll have a movie, you'll have a Swamp Thing movie that you can distribute. And they said, oh, that's great, that's great. And I don't know if they ever did it. I, you know, it's not like they, they consult with you. You know, it, mm -hmm. it goes in the vault and somewhere, somehow, somebody pulls it out and exploits it and they make money on it. But um, Hollywood. Hollywood. But we, we, we did a few of those because it was a little half-hour series, but we were able to construct some things that wanted to be uh, longer um, without being part one, part two, part three. We, we never did that. But we linked them in, in a thematic way or whatever so they, they could use them if they wanted. That that versatility is what's really interesting, especially in this show. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, but, okay, I had a further question. What, what you're talking about, you know, you actually you got to write dialogue for Freddy Krueger. Um, I have two questions about that. Yes. <laughs> like, really specifically. Um, so did they give you any parameters saying like oh freddie wouldn't behave this way or you can't have him doing this or was it kind of free reign for you um let's see i i, I don't believe there was any real guidance on that 
um, you know, if you saw the movie or any of the movies, I don't know how many there had been by that point. Uh, but there, there would have been four, movies. I believe. Yeah. So his his uh, uh, worldview, shall we say, was real <laughs> specific, and you know, obviously they wanted him to be nasty and funny and uh, you know insidiously evil with a wink to the audience and mm-hmm. so that was yeah i'm sure discussed but you didn't have to because all you had to do was watch a couple of these and you'd see and i watched all the episodes in the first season as well when they gave me this assignment they handed me you know a box of uh, you know vhs tapes and i took them home and watched them all so i could see what the show was but just the their the bumper you know the the main title uh, you know, Freddie loves life, or his version of life, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and loves tormenting people, especially teenagers, but, you know, anybody that dares to fall asleep and challenge him. And so it was pretty obvious what to do, and, you know, and, and it was coming up with those kind of, here's Johnny kind of lines for him in the, whatever situation it was that was really fun. And I don't know, uh, you know, that it was really any more sophisticated than that, but it was fun because he's in the story and he's either either pursuing someone or someone's trying to pursue him, and then he's always there out with them, with the most just evil, insidious laugh and you know uh, mocking mockery, you know, and and so mm-hmm. that is my sense of humor. <laughs> so it was pretty easy. I, I didn't have to dig very deep to to channel my inner Freddy. Because that's me, and you know that you know you've known me a long time, so it's like that's me. No, it it definitely comes out without um, without the razor fingers, you know. Uh, that's me. Yeah, like goofy and kind of dark sense of humor simultaneously. No, that's that's a well, good that, fit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, um, it is a good fit, and and maybe you know, I mean, seriously, when, when you're when you when you're doing a TV series or a movie, and you're casting for people to. To, to fill certain roles. It could be the, on the crew, it could be certainly actors, but writers on a TV series, you are casting. And it's not just, oh, you know, Brennan is a better writer than Tom, well, let's hire Brennan, because Brennan may not be the right fit. And, and some of that just goes to a sense of who the person is or, 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 or their outlook or their humor, or, you know, you look at their credits and maybe have a couple of conversations with them. Um, because you are casting something that is very intimate. You know, someone is going to be sitting looking at a blank page and fill it up with words. They have to comport with what you have been doing, are doing, aspire to do with your show. And uh, I think maybe because that's so hard to do, it's one reason a lot of series have gotten away from that. They'd just rather hire all their writers, put them on staff, and have them write everything. on the shows when I was still producing TV series, I loved having freelance writers come in, but I rarely used writers I didn't know because of that huge risk of would this person be the right fit and deliver the right goods. Uh, so I used people I'd worked with before, yeah, people I'd been on staff with before, producers that had hired me on, some, on shows and I really liked their style and I liked their work and they happened to be available. Um, so it, it used to be a fairly incestuous kind of community, you know, people hiring each other, having worked together um, on, in one form or another. And then 
somebody says, hey, listen, you know, would you take a look at this script? This guy's awesome. I think he's good for you. And then based on what you read and then what their credits are and the recommendation of someone you trust who senses your uh, needs and, 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 and instincts and stuff, uh, you know, then you find a new writer. Um, and But they got away from that. So it's it's. I'm glad I was doing it when I was doing it because it, it made it possible to have a career, which is, even though there's many, many more TV shows and platforms now, uh, you still have to get somebody to read your stuff and 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 try you somehow and put you on staff, and, and it's very challenging. Yeah, you know, I guess it's, it sounds like kind of both both sides of it have their pros and cons. Of it, it, it is it is just overall challenging to break in and maintain, and so yeah. good for you for doing. It. Yeah, thank you. Yes, you're welcome. I'm very uh, grateful. Trust me. Oh yeah, of course. Like, and you've had such a you know, fabulous career. Um, well, it, uh, it, my career when I was doing this full time was, you know, kind of amazed me uh, at times, um, you know, because I, I wound up writing about 100 hours of television and I produced about 800 hours um, and of network television. And so you know, that's a lot of that's a lot of work, but it's not all. It's not constant and it's not predictable and it's not mm -hmm. always successful. Uh, sometimes it's miserable. Uh, uh, I used to tell people that some of the shows I worked on were like someone pulling your teeth through your sinuses with rusty pliers. I mean, it's just a <laughs> miserable, a miserable uh, way to spend your your time on this earth. You know, literally, uh, you know, awful people or an awful show or awful whatever interpersonal difficulties and and other shows are just fantastic with great people and you know you just love everybody and, and everybody's in there for the right reasons and doing the work and you're stimulated uh, creatively you're stimulated personally um, but it is an up and down dynamic uh, sometimes the ups are effect you know, in, in general in the industry the highs are very high and the lows are very low so in looking back, I'm thrilled at my career, but there were times, you know, where I wasn't working and I didn't know what I was going to do next. And all, you know, show gets canceled. You're standing there, left by the side of the road, holding your suitcase, going, well, "What happened? I, I thought we were doing great." And I mean, I, 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 you know, jobs that were supposed to happen, they said, "Yes, you're hired," and then somebody goes, "Oops, no, we changed our mind." I mean, all those things are heartbreakers, and you have to kind of toughen up to get through them. Uh, and it's true now. It was very true then, and and uh, so here I am, still standing, and really grateful for the, the totality of it all. Which is why I went into teaching, so I could help share some of that with, with my students at the universities that I taught at, um, because there are some lessons you only learn um, in the trenches, so, so to speak. And so you know, I taught it in screenwriting at USC Film School and AFI and Chapman. In UCLA and uh, had a private workshop in my home for a while with some selected uh, students, very eager, very talented, and, and then wound up at uh, California State University, Long Beach, uh, as a full-time uh, teacher. Where you met me, your favorite teacher. Where I met you, you my had. worst student, my <laughs> worst student. Uh, in fact, uh, they're 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 looking into your transcripts now to see how the hell you graduated. Nobody nobody can understand it. 
That's okay. <laughs> I, I already, I've, I've already swiped them from the registrar's office, so they are, they are no longer present. Oh, you are evil. Uh, <laughs> but yes, but that, you know, when we met, uh, I was new to uh, full-time teaching. I had, you know, taught periodically in between series over the years because it was really fun. And I always knew I wanted to do it uh, as a full-time matter eventually. And, and the, the Cal State Long Beach thing came up. I jumped in one semester to fill in for somebody who was injured and couldn't teach that semester. And I really liked the place. I liked the students. I liked the, the whole thing about that little humble department. And, um, and somebody left the faculty, one of the full-time people, and they said, hey, you want to apply for this? And by that point, I thought, yeah, I'm ready for this. I, I, I don't need to grind my way through the TV industry anymore. I've done that, and this is a lot more fun. And it really was a lot more fun. So I was there for 15 years and, and uh, enjoyed sharing some of this with students. And so hopefully you guys would not only know what it was like, but how to do it when you, or how to, how to deal with things when you encounter them uh, to, to some degree, uh, above and beyond what's in the textbook. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely invaluable. And like, as far as, you know, when you first, like your first teaching gig, did you sit down and kind of try to go back through your career and try to convert that into lessons in some way? Or did it just come up naturally kind of throughout like the course that you were teaching? Wow, that's a great question. Um, well, when I first started teaching, I was an adjunct. The first, the first, uh, uh, I, it, it came in baby steps. I uh, stayed involved with my alma mater, uh, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois, uh, over the years. And they would have me back every year for a week. Uh, they'd have a bunch of alums come back and hold seminars. They would suspend all the classes that week. And then they had these seminars, different guys, you know, uh, a producer at CBS News and a guy who did TV commercials and somebody owned a TV station and me and, and uh, uh Another friend of mine became a, a very uh, a successful film producer, and so we we would all go back for a week and meet with all the students and the faculty and go drinking with them at night and just you know really just total immersion, have a great time, and I loved what I experienced there over the years. So that really whetted my appetite to teach at some point, um, and. Um, I had also remained friends with a couple of my college professors, uh, one of whom is still alive. I mean, she's a thousand years old now, but I, I love her, and we are still in touch. Uh, a couple of them have passed away, but they were lifelong friends, and we stayed in touch, and they cheered me on, and they, you know, watched my TV shows, and you know, applauded me, and it was really a wonderful, uh, wonderful, uh, very satisfying dynamic, and and I, I thought. You know, I want to be that guy to somebody else. You know, that, that, those are the people that are really fulfilled because what they knew was carried on somehow. You know, through the through the industry and uh, and and the friendship deepened over years. It was wonderful. So, um, so my first teaching thing was at uh, USC Film School in the, in the grad school, and it was a seminar. It was a thesis seminar. Uh, uh, and I, I taught it with another uh, producer friend of mine, 
and uh, we it was we had six students, so six students and two teachers sitting around a table. So it's a, that's a wonderful way to get your feet wet teaching, because it was less lecturing. Uh, in fact, with no lecturing, it was just talking to them, uh, reading their material, and helping them develop their thesis screenplays. And um, and so I did that for a couple of semesters, uh, and thought, okay, I love this. This is nuts. This is great. And then I went back on a show for a couple of years, and then when that was over, I went back, and then I think AFI called it. And uh, somebody that I had met at a Writers Guild meeting or something called and said, hey, we need somebody that we had a teacher. Somebody lined up, and they had to drop out because they got a pilot, and would you want to come do this? So I jumped in, and it was you know, writing episodic television, which I was doing for a living so I yeah you know how to that. do that <laughs> I know how to do that and uh, I already used to but uh, and I really enjoyed that so I wound up going back to AFI a bunch of times um, you know and that's uh, entirely a graduate school and um, I taught episodic writing to people in a, in a program that did not in those days, hardly even acknowledged television. So these people all were screenwriters, and some of them never watched TV, didn't know anything about TV, but the school wisely felt that they needed that in their background. Um, and I drilled that point home by telling about all the writers I knew that wanted to be screenwriters, um, but you know, ended up making a living uh, in television and, and all the screenwriters that were leaving screenwriting to try to get into television because it was actually a chance of your work being filmed uh, mathematically. Uh, it's not the case in movies. So, um, you know, it, it, it was very effective and again, made several friends. A couple of those students wound up uh, being recruited uh, by, by our department at Cal State Long Beach and became screenwriting faculty later on, which was really fun for me. Talk about completing a circle. That was really great. So um, uh, my lecture stuff evolved. Uh, you know, I would have notes of what I wanted to talk to them about and, and uh, get more formal at AFI. And then, I, then Chapman, the same thing. I was teaching Chapman and AFI at the same time one year. And, and I, by that point, had a... Um, a series of, of, of talks that I had prepared. <clears throat> and when I got to Long Beach, it was a completely different matter. First of all, it was all undergraduate. And the classes that I was teaching were not screenwriting. They were you know, media aesthetics and film and culture and mm -hmm. um, classes I took. But I certainly, I don't think I was an expert at any of those things, uh, except for my life experience. And and so I did a lot of preparation for those courses. I mean, you know, including, you know, reading textbooks and, and pulling things together and syllabi that other teachers at other schools offered for those same kinds of courses to try to give them the best experience I could. Yeah, well, I certainly and learned that, in, that, in that media aesthetics class for sure. Thank so, you. Yeah. That, that, was, that was really fun. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and then film production, you know, guiding people like you through the short script and then putting a crew together and learning to work collaboratively and then direct and, 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 and uh, edit your, your short. Uh, and that was very satisfying because it did pull together all the stuff that I had done in my professional career and when I was a student. Um, 
and uh, uh, so it worked out wonderfully well for Tom. That's for sure. <laughs> that that's a that's a good moral to the story. Oh, um, thank you. No problem. Uh, Just proves almost... that evil does win occasionally. Oh yeah, and I think that uh, that is a you know a tone that's in line with Freddy's nightmares for sure. He, Thank you. <laughs> Freddy's not a loser. Um, no. Oh yeah, no. We're um, we're getting close to our wrapping up time, but I had one more question just about your episodes. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Obviously, you got to write the dialogue for Freddy Krueger because you know you wrote the episodes. But I'm curious if they had you write the interstitial bits, like the kind of crypt keeper moments, or if they had someone else write them for like the whole season. Oh, that was all done. Uh, you know, I never never saw those till I saw the show air, and that was. Um, I don't know if they they probably did a package of those at the beginning of each season. You know, when they had uh, Robert England in. Um, you know, they would just do a morning where he would do those uh, those bumper things, and uh, so yeah, I didn't have to do that. So uh, whoever wrote them, probably the show runner. Um, mm -hmm. They were they were fun though. Oh yeah, they were fun. I was just, I was curious because I figured that's how it worked, but I, I haven't talked to anyone who was actually there yet. So thank you for enlightening me. Yeah, yeah, those things. You know, typically when you are writing an episode, whether you're on staff or you're in the old days freelancing. Uh, you know, you're, you're writing the fade-ins to the fade-outs, but main title-type material, uh, bumpers, uh, you know, if you watch Shameless, you know, those bumpers that they, they, they have at the beginning of each episode, you know, challenging you to, you know, where the hell were you? What do you mean you're, you know, why, why, why weren't you here last week? You mean <laughs> we got to recap this for you, you idiots? You know, those things. I mean, that's, you know, they have a producer on the set and they grab those moments and, and improvise them and, and, and write them separately. It's nothing to do with whoever wrote the episode. Okay. That's interesting. So, so you're extra lucky because if it had, if it had not been an episode where they got Robert England, you wouldn't have gotten to, you know, play around in that sandbox. No. And you know, I mean, I went to the rap party and, and met him and, uh, uh at, at Jerry's deli in studio city and, <clears throat> and, uh, got to introduce myself and just say, you know, I wrote Dreams That Kill and all that. And he went, oh, I love that. It was great. I mean, what an honor. That that sounds like a mind-blowing experience. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I mean, really, uh, you know, again, you're writing. Uh, you know, I, 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 I never went to the set. I was, you know, went to their office. And, uh, they had a sound stage, you know, in, the, in that building, but... Um, you know, you come in, you have your meetings, they're busy, you're busy, and you get home and you, you get to work. And so I never, it's not like you're a part of the production mm -hmm. when, you, when you're a, a writer, uh, unless you are assigned to that task on the set, uh, which makes you a story editor or a writer-producer. And a freelancer would have no reason to go there, you know, waste their time or yours. Um, but... They did have a really nice rap party, and and, uh, and it was, you know, uh, I got a chance to meet the other writers and some of the directors, and, um, uh, and of course, Robert England, just very cool uh, for all the obvious reasons. So, you know, it, uh, it was a nice uh, conclusion to that relationship, that's for sure. Well, that's so nice, and it's nice that you got to be involved because yeah, writing writing can definitely be a a lonely kind of like just shut in a room experience. It's cool to kind of 
in some way get to you know interact with the people who are bringing it to life yeah and i always when i was producing series always tried to include writers you know invite them to the set to have lunch if if we were you know shooting in town and and uh and in in you know have them come and, and watch dailies uh with the writers and the executives each day because you know you do that now people tend to you know watch them at home at night when they get home but there was a more of a social aspect in the old days too they were shooting on film and so they would screen the previous day's footage all the takes and everything in a room and everybody goes to the at the same time to watch the footage and discuss what they've seen and make make changes or make amendments or make a new plan and I always used to include freelance writers in that if they wanted to come they were welcome because I wanted them to first of all it's their work wanted them to see their work unfolding and, and offer any observations that they might have but just to feel like you're part of the family because this is kind of you know there's some family aspects to this that not to sound too corny but it really actually is and, and if you're doing it right and that's kind of goes to that experience I mentioned of some shows were tooth pulls and they were not pleasant well the people running those shows uh, tended to not be what I'll say family oriented you know they and, and, and it can become an oppressive uh, environment as opposed to being a welcoming nurturing creative fun environment um, I just subscribe the idea that people do their best work when they're having fun just like learning you know people learn more faster and retain it longer if they're having fun then if you know it's they hate it and it's as dry and uninspiring they're not going to learn as much and that's just you know fact so i subscribe to that and try always try to employ it yeah and it sounds like you took the right lessons away from you know your negative experiences so that's always a good thing you well, can turn it into something and, and it is yeah well and it is the learning curve you know every business is a learning curve you know when you're not running things you observe and we've all had you know bosses that were screamers and petulant idiots and people that were promoted uh, you know and no one could figure out why and and uh, things that are politically very t contentious and and you, you you if you're paying attention if you're really watching what's going on and you say to yourself wow if i'm ever in charge i'm never going to do that and wow, look at that, it was genius. If I'm ever in charge, I'm gonna do that for sure. And you make notes mentally or on paper. And then when you are in charge, if, if you don't in incorporate those lessons, then you're an idiot. I mean, you <laughs> need to you need to learn and grow from your experiences. Um, if someone treated you badly, why would you treat someone badly? Especially in that in the same fashion why would you do that you hated it when it happened to you so you know you want to try to learn and grow as a person and as a professional in whatever field you're in and and it's very true in a, um, a creative environment where there's high stakes you know a lot of money at stake and time constraints that are unreasonable often and, and dynamic forces in every direction from the network or the star of the show or whatever you know and and you just need to adapt to survive but also to prosper and if you pay attention someday and you you know climb your way up whatever ladder that is then there's no reason you can't be extremely successful because you love void 
as many of the mistakes as you saw happen as you possibly can, and you, you know, imitate the best that you've experienced uh, wherever and however, you know, you you're able. And it's it isn't brain surgery. You know, it's just <laughs> paying attention. No, that's a that's a um, th that's a really like smart philosophy to approach. And I, I do think that's a good place to like start closing out. Um, I did want to say thank you again so much for coming on. This is a really enlightening conversation. I'm really happy we got to talk to you. But also, thank you. do you yes. have any do you have any projects that you want to share with our audience? Like I know you have a book. Do you feel like you want to talk about that yet? Or is the timing okay? Uh, sure. Well, I, I, I thank you, and uh, you know I, I did write a novel. Uh, so after I left. Uh, while I was wrapping out of teaching, preparing to retire, uh, I pulled up the old, you know, great American novel that everybody talks about, and I, I had something I'd been chipping away at, in, you know, whenever I had time. Um, and I did publish that book, uh, and it's called Silent Partners, uh, and it's on Amazon, and it's a forensic thriller, uh, and you have read it, uh, and uh, said very nice things about it. Thank you. And, and, You're welcome. Um, uh, but it was a a, uh, a passion project, uh, something, a story that occurred to me many years ago, and I mean literally like 25 years ago, and, and a, a premise for a crime, and you start to build on that. So that came out, and we did the audiobook last year, uh, narrated by an actor named William Sterling. He did a wonderful job. That's on Audible, and uh, it's on Kindle as well at Amazon. So... Silent Partners is that one, and um, and there's reviews and tra uh, movie trailer and stuff on that at TomBlumquist.com, so people can check that out. And then I have a new book, which will be out by the end of the year, uh, called Devious Thinking, and it is a uh, revenge comedy uh, set in Rome, uh, full of devious people and devious, uh, you know, actions and strategies and... and uh, uh, that that too has been a passion project. Uh, another story that occurred to me a long time ago, when I was in Italy uh, working on a movie uh, with Vittorio De Sica and some great people, and and uh, the people I met there, and it's some incidents that unfolded while I was living in Rome, uh, all kind of went in the uh, story uh, bank in my head, and out came this story, uh, this book, and so I hope people will like it, and it'll be out fairly soon. All right, and and for everyone who's interested, I am going to have a link to that website in the show notes, so you can just click on through down there. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so when Devious Thinking is out, uh, that'll be uh, on that page. Right now, it's all, all about silent partners, and there's some stuff about me, and you know, me, 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 and more me. You know? <laughs> uh, but um, uh, and then there's you know Facebook pages, uh, for, you know, my uh, uh, the books all have their own Facebook page as well, but. Yeah, the the website's got tons of stuff. So, an audiobook sample and the movie trailer that we did, and um, and so forth. Yeah, please check that out. Um, and yeah, this was a special bonus episode. You're still going to get a regular episode coming out on Tuesday. But until then, sweet dreams and happy Halloween, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs>